Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra horse and carriage episode, marriage conjures up so many things, but here's a longish short list. Union, promise, vow, relationship, interdependence, security, sacrifice, contract, commitment, hard work, choice. Why do people get married? According to a Pew Research Center study, the top three reasons are for love, long-term commitment, and companionship. Given our culture's relatively high divorce rate, which is actually trending down, would you be surprised to hear that the best marriages today are better than the best ones of previous times? Author Eli J. Finkel makes that argument in his book, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. Finkel is a professor of social psychology at Northwestern University. He studies interpersonal attraction, marriage, conflict resolution, and how our social relationships influence our goal achievement. He was featured on a fascinating recent episode of NPR's Hidden Brain, Why Did Marriage Become So Hard? This past fall, Finkel visited the Emerald City to read from his book and chat with someone who knows a thing or two about love and sex, Seattle author and activist Dan Savage. University Bookstore presented their talk on September 26th at University Temple United Methodist Church. Sonia Harris recorded the conversation. Please note this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Eli J. Finkel opens the event. A bit from the, the preface of the book, so this, this bit is called A Personal Voyage. Uh, every year shortly before Valentine's Day, I commandeer the official Northwestern University Twitter handle uh, for an hour to answer questions about relationships. At the university's request, I spend the time engaging with people who tweet questions containing the hashtag AskFinkel. Uh, once, my wife submitted a tongue-in-cheek question and I seized the rather public opportunity to get romantic. So. Here was her tweet, at Northwestern U, what is the most important lesson you've learned from your own marriage? Hashtag ask Finkel. But the reality is that marriage is much more complicated than a tweet, much more complicated than almost anything we do, actually. In real life, I mess up a lot. So that's one of the reasons why I study marriage for a living. Yes, I find the topic fascinating in its own right, but I also seek evidence-based solutions to challenges in my own marriage. Like the formerly bald spokesman for Hair Club for Men, Uh, who declared in those kitschy 1980s ads that he's not only the company's president, but also a client. I am not only a scholar who conducts research to understand how marriage works, but also an avid consumer of such research. Allison and I have enjoyed extended periods of bliss, but we have also endured difficulties severe enough to raise questions about our marriage's long-term viability. Both the blissful and the difficult times inform the scientific questions I investigate, and the data-based answers to those questions inform how I behave in our marriage. Over the years, I've leveraged this dialectic between the personal and the professional to develop a unique marital toolkit. It isn't the toolkit of a master craftsman, unfortunately, but it does have some unorthodox tools in it, and those are uh, among the most useful. So periodically throughout this book, we'll revisit this toolkit, not only to study the tools themselves, but also to examine the failures that necessitated their development. So a little bit more um, about the, uh, the, the aspirations, what I hope to accomplish in the book, and, and what I've, um, uh, I think what I have attempted to bring here with us today. So this is actually an, um, 
uh, video, a brief uh, whiteboard animation video that Logan uh, Yuri and I created together, and uh, was we made public basically today. We were kind of excited because Ariana Huffington posted this from her Facebook today. Um, so this gives a sense of some of the front end of the book. The first third of the book is a whole lot about the, the history of marriage, and we've distilled a lot of that insight down to about three minutes. So here goes. Marry for love? For most of history, the idea would have seemed silly. Marriage was essential for day-to-day -day survival, for reproduction and social acceptance. Today, we marry for love and so much more. But how did we get here? Let's look to Abraham Maslow as our unlikely tour guide. Maybe you learned in Psych 101 about his hierarchy of needs, with physiological and safety needs at the bottom, belonging and love needs in the middle, and esteem and self-actualization needs at the top. Like a video game of life, you can't pursue the higher needs until you've met the lower ones. For thousands of years, spouses were workmates. They struggled together to produce the food, clothing, and shelter required to survive. Then, starting around 1850, America and other Western nations industrialized. Increasing wealth meant that more people could meet those low-level needs without being married. For the first time ever, personal fulfillment became a primary goal of marriage, which jumped up to Maslow's love and belonging level. Spouses went from workmates to soulmates. But this early version of soulmate marriage was based on the idea that men and women should adhere to radically different gender stereotypes in order to inspire love. The assertive breadwinner married the nurturing homemaker. In the 1960s, people staged a full-on revolt against these constricting social roles. Individuality, freedom of expression, and authenticity became the holy grail. Today, we still marry for love, but we also require that our partner help us grow toward our authentic self. Michelangelo said that sculpting is not about creating a sculpture, but about revealing it. Chiseling and polishing the block of marble to reveal the beautiful form slumbering within. Similarly, married people began looking to their partner to sculpt away their flaws and facades, bringing forth the authentic self buried within. The climb of marriage up Maslow's hierarchy creates a paradox. On one hand, as our expectations become increasingly complex, more marriages fall short. To meet our highest needs, our partner must understand us profoundly. Even if we invest tons of time and effort in the relationship, which most of us aren't doing, there's no guarantee we'll attain this level of understanding. From this perspective, it's no surprise that the divorce rate doubled between 1960 and 1980, reaching 50%, or that the average marriage is less satisfying today than it was a few decades ago. On the other hand, the best marriages today are better than the best marriages of earlier eras. When they do manage to fulfill our highest needs, we can achieve, in Maslow's words, profound happiness, serenity, and richness of the inner life. In our grandparents' era, a loving and respectful marriage generally made people happy. Today, many of us find such a marriage disappointing if it doesn't also facilitate our voyage of self-discovery and personal growth. But those of us whose marriage achieves all of that enjoy a level of marital fulfillment that grandma and grandpa wouldn't have dreamed possible. Again, we're pretty excited about this. We just, uh, we worked on it for a while and it's just, um, just finished now. So I wanna say about this book, I, I'm very proud to have written this book. I'm, I'm very pleased with the way it came together. This isn't the book that I set out to write. 
I set out to write a book that was tentatively titled The Freighted Marriage, and the idea was about how we're asking more and more and more of this one relationship, while at the same time we're actually spending less time alone with our spouse than we were in the past, and it was, it was going to be a story about how we're mismanaging our, our marital lives, that we're basically putting too much strain on this one relationship, this one institution, and it's, all, and it's buckling under the strain. But my home discipline is psychology. We do things like bring uh, couples to the laboratory and videotape them interacting and then try to follow them over time to see if we can predict who succeeds and who, who has greater success, less success in the marriage. But writing the book got me outside of my home discipline to sociology, history, economics, philosophy, and I learned a lot that I hadn't known before. And the best thing that happened as I went through that process of familiarizing myself with what other scholars from other disciplines have said about marriage is, is that the story changed from one of decline, a, a pessimistic story about how marriage is getting worse, to one that has a little bit more of a hopeful message. The idea here is, I wasn't wrong. We are asking more of our marriage, and we are spending a little bit less time on average with our spouse, and for that reason, the average marriage is indeed a little bit worse than it was 20 or 40 years ago. But at the same time, the best marriages are actually getting better. Right, that we're asking different sorts of things from our marriage. As we look to the top of Maslow's hierarchy to achieve those sorts of things, it's up there that you get the sort of marriage that can reveal profound satisfaction and richness of the inner life. And when people weren't trying to achieve those sorts of things from their marriage, those types of fulfilling outcomes were out of reach. And so this is really an all or nothing story. This is a story about how the best marriages are getting better than ever, how the average marriages are getting a little bit worse, and how we in our own marriages can leverage the insights that, that in particular psychological scientists have developed about how we can improve our own marriage. Okay. One thing I want to drive home that I think comes through in the video, but not with the power that, that I would like it to here tonight. This is Abraham Lincoln's birth home. When he, this is 200 years ago. He was born in 1809. He had an older sister, and uh, he and his sister and the parents shared this one-room dirt floor log cabin. There was another sibling that came, but that sibling died in infancy. When Abraham was nine, his mother died. When Abraham was still a teenager, his remaining sibling died giving birth to a stillborn child. And, and like his tale of woe continues. Now, Abraham Lincoln was less fortunate than many of his contemporaries, but death, famine, disease, freezing temperatures, locusts, like these were really serious plagues of everyday life. The threat of actual death was imminent for people about a couple hundred years ago. So I ask you to consider, what would you prioritize in a marriage? The things that we're looking for would have seemed foreign and borderline silly in an era where life was so precarious and, house, and spouses were workmates. Food, clothing, shelter, healthcare. These were the primary sources of, of these are the primary functions of marriage. And it wasn't until the society gets wealthier and the culture changes that we start to look for personal fulfillment from our marriages like we do today. Okay. If we are in this era, this, this uh, all-or-nothing era of marriage, and if we have, have a marriage that's, you know, short of our expectations, maybe it's a little short, maybe it's a lot short, what can we do? Like, are there any insights that we have developed from this new theory of marriage, and as we review the scientific evidence about what works in a marriage, what can we do to make our marriage stronger? Well, the logic, the all-or-nothing theory of marriage suggests that there's a few things we can do. Think about it this way. It's sort of a supply and demand perspective. Demand is what are we asking of our marriage? What are we demanding of the marriage? And the supply is what can the marriage actually provide us, which is determined by things like compatibility, time together, 
communication skills, those sorts of things, is what we're demanding from the marriage commensurate with the, the supply that the marriage can actually provide. And this suggests that, that there are a few different ways we can approach making our marriage stronger. One of them is to go all in, is to say, wow, like it's cool that we live in 2017 and there's like this really sort of special type of marriage that's available today that in 1800 or in 1950 wouldn't have even seemed realistic, people wouldn't have even considered. I want that. What can I do to achieve that level of, of marital fulfillment? Well, there's a lot of things that, that you can do. And again, the, the research is now at a point where yes, it offers insights like, yes, date nights are good for your marriage. These, these, these um, trite recommendations, which are actually good recommendations, just because they're trite doesn't make them wrong. But the science has gotten to the point where we can be more specific than that, right? So yes, go on date nights, but not only that, how should you spend your date nights? Right, and so let me give you an example of, of one of the studies that I talk about in, in, the, uh, in the book. So this is a study, an, an experiment. So imagine that you're in this study, you come to a psychology laboratory, in the control condition, um, we'll set that aside for now, in the control condition, we just follow you over time, we don't actually intervene with you at all. And then there are two intervention conditions. There's a comfortable activities condition and an exciting activities condition. In the comfortable activities condition, you read an article that says, science has now advanced to the point where we know that one of the great things we can do for our relationship is to engage in comfortable sorts of activities together. People who do this, by the way, come up with things like watching Friends reruns, right? These are nice things that we can do together. The exciting activities condition is the same, except it's the same structure. But instead of saying comfortable activities is where the magic is, we say that exciting activities is where the magic is. And, and people listed things like tick ballroom dancing lessons together, shucked oysters for the first time together. These are the sorts of activities. So here's the deal. You're assigned, depending upon which condition you're in, to do either comfortable activities as much as you can over the next 72 hours, or exciting activities as much as you can over the next 72 hours. And then we looked at relationship quality. So more or less, how satisfied are you? And it turns out that relative to people in the control condition that we didn't give any additional advice to, People in both of those other conditions were significantly happier in the relationship 72 hours later. What about sexual desire? It gets interesting here. Turns out that if you're trying to have like a warm, loving sort of connection with your spouse, either of these types of activities has value. If one of the things you particularly want to do is to build up the fire, build up the sense of sexual passion a little bit more, it turns out that exciting activities help. But in fact, comfortable activities are really if anything, kind of the enemy, right? I mean, they don't really hurt you, but, but they're, not, they're not the way to increase passion. And so the book talks about a bunch of different strategies that we can use, different all-in strategies, but here's an example of, of uh, an approach that we can take, which is, yes, date nights are good if you have the resources and the time to go through with it, but you don't always, but, but how do you spend those dates? Doing something outside the box. Look, there's a second thing, right? So, so I, I said the supply and demand way of thinking has a few implications. One is this go-all-in strategy, but, but not everybody has the time. Either the, the motivation to find the time or, the, or actually you have two young kids at home and there's a slow burning crisis at work. There's times when you don't, or, or like you're really trying to figure out the money situation and that's a source of stress. What do you do if you aren't ready to sacrifice your, your asks? If you're not ready to demand a little bit less of your marriage, but you're at sort of a fallow time in terms of having enough resources to invest enough, there's a number of procedures, I talk about eight procedures in the book, that I call love hacks. And all of these are science-based procedures that, that have been developed really mostly in the last 10 or 15 years that we can use that, that, are, that are quick and dirty. In fact, they have two defining features. One is they are 
they don't require much time or energy. These are things that maybe you can uh, do in 10 minutes a month, and you can do them by yourself. They don't even require that you're coordinating with your spouse. And the logic behind love hacks comes from Marcel Proust, who says, mystery is not about traveling to new places, but about looking with new eyes. So yes, traveling to new places is great. Do those exciting activities. But if you can't do those exciting activities, a pretty good way of doing things is to try to look with a more generous set of new eyes at the current situation. So here's an example. This is a study that, that we ran at Northwestern. We recruited 120 couples, married couples, from the Chicago area. And every four months over the course of two years, they wrote about the biggest conflict they had in their marriage. In the second year of the study, we randomly assigned half of these couples to engage in an additional writing task, so they're still also writing about the conflict they've had, but now there's an additional writing task where they're trying to think about that conflict from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for all involved. So you get it, everybody's writing about the conflict, but now there's this additional writing task that's having you think about that conflict from this neutral, benevolent third-party perspective. Now, people do that for seven minutes at, at this wave, seven minutes at this wave, seven minutes at this wave, it's a total of 21 minutes. Well, what you see in the no intervention condition is what you see in pretty much every study I've ever seen of marriage, which is if you follow marital quality over time, the sad truth is that on average it goes down a little bit. But it looks like we can mitigate that. It looks like we can eliminate that downward downward trajectory with this 21-minute marriage hack or, or um, you know, third-party reappraisal intervention. And like I said, this is one example of how we can do quick sort of reframing of things in the marriage in a way that's not going to change the fundamental nature of how the marriage is going, but helps us think in a more generous way, look with more generous eyes at, at how the relationship is going. Now, both of the examples I talked about thus far, going all in and love hacking, are examples that assume that we're gonna ask all these things of the marriage. That we're gonna say, yes, it's 2017 and I want all these things of the marriage, but there is no shame in a third option, which is I've, I call recalibrating, which is basically lowering expectations. Ideally, we're lowering expectations in a strategic way that says, are there specific places where I'm just reliably frustrated, I'm disappointed or frustrated by uh, what's going on in the marriage, or maybe my spouse is. Are there specific places that we can look to say, you know what, there's no rule, there's no like 10 commandments from Mount Sinai that said, you must, thou shalt ask the following things of your marriage, right? We have flexibility in terms of saying, I'm gonna look to my spouse for this, but I'm not gonna look to my spouse for everything. Are there ways that I can ask a little bit less? And the book talks about a bunch of examples. One thing that I think is, oh, oh before I get to an example, I, I just wanna mention this. So this is John Gottman, I think the most famous marriage researcher, psychology marriage researcher uh, out there today. And this sort of terrified me. I was almost done writing the book when I found this. The only book I ever threw away, and I threw it high over the rooftops of Boston from an elevated train platform, was Abraham Maslow's book on self-actualization. And like when, when basically like the God in your discipline says that, when you're basically done with a book saying how self-actualization is, a, is a, an exciting way to approach marriage these days, you get a little freaked out. Gottman refers to himself as a plumber. Gottman says, can we talk about the good enough marriage? Because we're all so stressed out about having a spectacular marriage that we're actually harming ourselves. And you know what? I agree with him. I mean, I, he is more down this road than I am because I think he pretty strongly advocates what I view as one of three options, but this option is, is pretty sensible. And let me give you one example of a finding from, from a recent finding from psychology. This one also comes from Northwestern University. So in this study, 
People are asked, the, the, uh, I, I'm happy to answer questions about the details of the study, but, but the way it, it breaks down in the end is you get a score for how socially, for how diversified your social portfolio is. That is, when you think about the emotional experiences you have, so to whom do you go when you want to cheer you up when you're sad? To whom do you go when you want to feel like to manage your sense of guilt? To whom do you go when you want to celebrate when things are good? Some people pick a relatively small number of people and say, I really want to go to this person for that. I want to go to this person for that also. I want to go to this person for that also. Others of us spread those things around. Well, it turns out that if you look at how diversified people's social networks are, and how generally happy they are with their life, you see a difference, not a huge one, it's not like this is the only way to live your life, but people who tend to focus have different social relationships that they like to use for different, so different like emotional experiential purposes have actually a little bit more happiness with their life than people who have a relatively narrow um, social portfolio. Okay, it's, it's an exciting time. We live in an era where we get a lot of choice about whom we marry, when we marry, if we marry, even things like divorce, right? We, we have a lot of freedom that people didn't used to have, and we can use this freedom to make really sensible life decisions if we're being strategic about this. But, to my mind, we have created a social institution that's fragile, it's delicate, in a way that, that marriage didn't used to be. And, and I find this scene, let's, let's hope this plays, it didn't play one time recently. So do you guys know this movie, Sideways, who's seen this? There's a, there's a brief, that's most of you, that's excellent. So there's a brief one minute clip I wanna show by way of ending, ending this discussion. And I wanna say that, that marriage has shifted in America from something approximating Cabernet to something approximating Pinot. Why are you so into Pinot? <laughs> I mean, it's like a thing with you. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, it's a hard grape to grow. As you know, right? It's, it's thin skin, temperamental, ripens early. It's, you know, it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can just grow anywhere and uh, thrive even when it's neglected. No, Pinot needs constant care and attention. You know, and in fact, it can only grow in these really specific little tucked away corners of the world. And, and only the most patient and nurturing of growers can do it, really. Only somebody who really takes the time to understand Pino's potential can then coax it into its fullest expression. And then, I mean, oh, its flavors, they're just the most haunting and brilliant and thrilling and subtle. And, ancient on the planet. So we've changed. The, you know, the, there was a way that we went about marriage before, um, and relative to the way it used to be, the institution is fragile, it takes care, you have, to be, uh, you have to nurture it and cultivate it, but if you get it right, there's this haunting, brilliant, subtle, thrilling component to what we're able to experience now that was out of reach before. With that, uh, where is the good Dr. Savage? So I want to call up Dan, who, who got an introduction earlier, but I just want to say from a personal level, this has been a long-standing hero of mine. Don't, I don't want you to feel awkward about this. He is not only, I think, perhaps the single most astute thinker about relationships that is alive today, but also somebody who makes a real difference in terms of making life better. So please join me in welcoming the good doctor. Thank you, 
I have to thank you because until you reframed that clip as about relationships, as an extended metaphor about relationships, I've never been able to tolerate listening to assholes talk about wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I find it exhausting. Uh, David Brooks in the New York Times this week uh, praised your book, but then also kind of slammed your book. Uh, he writes, um, it's quite a good book full of interesting insights on contemporary marriage, but it conceives marriage completely within the Maslow frame. In this conception, a marriage exists to support the individual self-actualization of each of the partners. Uh, and I read this before I uh, had a chance to sit down and really start digging into the book, which I, which I really enjoyed, um, and fuck David Brooks. But <laughs> Yeah, who's on board with that? <laughs> but I do have to say that in learning about Maslow's uh, hierarchy, reading the book, that the, bot, the, the, the stuff that marriage used to be about is so uh, objective, whether, you're, whether you have shelter, whether you have heat, whether you have food, whether you have clothes, uh, whether you have economic safety, a sense of control, predictability, all these things that you break out in, in your elaboration of Maslow's frame in, in relationship to marriage. And then, you know, when you get a little higher love, whether you feel that. But when you get all the way up to self-actualization, how do you know? that you're self-actualized or not? And how do you know if your partner comes to you and says, I'm not feeling self-actualized today? Whether that's just not manipulative horseshittery. Yeah, I mean, this is a, <laughs> um, this is a terrific question because, and I, and I actually think the way you, you led into it, not, not the Brooks part, but right after that when, when you were talking about, the Brooks part you should have left out. Um, by the way, I actually loved that. So, so Logan said to me, you know you've arrived when you've been dissed by David Brooks in the New York Times, and that's sort of how I feel about the whole thing. Um, but you're right that, that like food... because he argues that marriage is about sublimating the self, not yeah. not highlighting the self, or not about self actualization, right. but about self abnegation. That's right. That that is what he argues. I think it is a like I actually think it was he was very respectful of the book, and I and I think he disagreed on on the merits and with really with Maslow, and I think he to, to a large degree was unfair to Maslow in the mm -hmm. piece, actually. Maslow is, it's, it's self-actualization, but that's not the same thing as selfish actualization. Maslow is very clear that he values, um, you know, service of, of something greater than yourself. Um, but with regard to, with regard to the, um, the needs in Maslow's hierarchy, so you're right, like if you're looking to marriage to, to help make sure that you're not freezing and that there's enough food, and of course people preferred to love their spouse, right? It just wasn't what the purpose of the institution was. You know, anybody who's, who's able to bring you food can do that. But if you think about the needs that, that, that are really like your, your subtle needs that are close to the self, that are difficult to achieve, or you would have achieved them already, they're subtle, they're idiosyncratic, they're not needs that are useful, they're not needs that are amenable to one-size-fits-all solutions. It's not like you can just give your partner a hug and that's gonna be the solution. That could be the exact wrong thing to do under other circumstances. So it's, it's, this, it's this exact component that, that makes him write about the, the Pino analysis um, correct, is, is these, are, these are idiosyncratic, complicated needs, and the question about whether you, you have um, self-actualized or not self-actualized, like there is no, like, there, you know, it's not like a bell goes off. Um, you get a sense. How do you of, prove it? You can prove whether there's yeah. food on the table. That's you right. can't prove. You can't prove it. You cannot prove it. But but you you have a greater or a lesser sense of I'm living a life that aligns with who I really am. And one of the things that's great about this era, for, for example, about this era of marriage is 
we're entitled to do that these days. Now, it's delicate, it's dangerous, it makes us a little more selfish, it makes us less willing to, to stick with something that's unfulfilling. It also makes us receptive to things like gay marriage. Like, other sort, like it's not, it, it doesn't work anymore for heterosexual people to say, this marriage isn't like, consistent with my authentic self, and then turn to gay people and say, sorry, tough luck. Mm -hmm. So I think it's part of the reason why we've had a, a pretty successful movement in the last, literally in the last well, five years. I think why we've had a successful movement uh, for marriage equality is because straight people redefined marriage That's to right. an extent you could no longer make a case for excluding right. same-sex couples from it because it was about love. When marriage became about love, same-sex marriage became an inevitability once straight people yeah. recognized that gay people were human and capable of loving each other. Totally. And actually, I feel like like love, the, the um, movement toward love was a huge step in that direction, but I actually feel like even a bigger step in that direction was to live an authentic life, that we're looking for this institution to, to be true to who we really are and to help us cultivate, discover and cultivate who we really are, it's, I think, one of the other, you know, major strikes in favor of gay marriage. All or nothing couples. Everyone who reads your book is going to sit there wondering as they yeah. read it, as I did, is my marriage an all or nothing marriage? <laughs> and yeah. I kind of go back and forth, like, I've been with my husband for 24 years, we've been married for as long as we could be married, we would have gotten married long ago if it was possible for us, and there are days I feel like this is an all marriage and there are days that I want to murder him. Yeah. And yeah. That's part of the all marriage is a just occasional homicide. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that, so my wife actually gave me just terrific feedback. Um, she read a, the penultimate copy of the book and gave me really good feedback. And one thing that, that she reminded me about that, that then uh, I weaved in a little bit in the book is nobody sits and hangs out at the top of this hierarchy. Right? Nobody sits and hangs out in self-actualization and is like, what? Here we are just chilling. You know, and, and a, an analogy that I use in the book is, is, that, is that we can think of Maslow's hierarchy as like a mountain. And, and I like the mountain climbing metaphor because, first of all, it's useful in terms of thinking, well, really, do you want to like make a summit attempt? Do you really want to try to get up there? And it helps us think like, all right, if you're going to do that, well, it's going to require this type of preparation and this type of effort along the way. But another thing I like about it is, it is it reminds you, you don't just sit there and hang out there where the oxygen is thin and it's a little complicated. You then say, well, the kids came and we don't have the resources right now to make the relationship as strong as possible. We're going to descend to base camp for a little bit and regroup. And so my view is that the, is that the all marriage does these, like, these um, summits up to Maslow's hierarchy, hangs out, enjoys the view for a while, and then says, okay, like, we need to chill for a bit and lower expectations for a while until they're ready for the next summit. I'm often encouraging, I've often been in a position with my sex advice column and my goofy sex advice podcast to encourage people to adjust their expectations. They might feel more fulfilled in their marriage if they expect less from it. Uh, I was uh, challenged by some of the things in your book because the sort of prevailing, used to be a counter sort of point or counterintelligence on marriage was people are expecting too much from each other, even spending too much time with each other, that your spouse shouldn't be your best friend and be your all and your everything. And what you advise in this book is more leaning into the spouse being your all and everything and spending more time together. I've sort of felt that we're too isolated in our marriages, particularly with the suburban, suburbanization that I witnessed as a kid when everybody white flighted the hell out of Chicago right. and wound up, I would go visit relatives who lived on, in the suburbs, yeah. locked in these boxes <laughs> without any interaction with their neighbors on the yeah. back stoop like we still had in Chicago where I grew up. And everyone felt so trapped and that this family unit felt stultifying in this way. And then I watched all those marriages fall apart yeah. as a young adult because people only had each other and they didn't have a web, they didn't have a social network, they didn't have a best friend they went to for one thing yeah. and a spouse they went to for another. Yeah. But you advise that people, 
in the love hacks that people should, spouses should spend more time together, more quality you know, time together. So the, you raised two important issues. So one is the thing, and we actually started talking a little bit about this on your podcast, but, but, but the, the, one of the issues is, is it good to have high expectations or bad to have high expectations? And I think I frustrate people who want to chime in on this because I demur on the question. Because I don't think the question, should you have high or low expectations, is the right question. No offense. <laughs> I, think, I think the right question is, are your expectations calibrated to what the marriage can realistically provide? And so, so I would say I'm not advising people to lean in or go all in is like my first strategy that I listed up here. I'm not saying that you should do that. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that if you do that and nail it, you can have a profoundly fulfilling marriage. That, that is, that is, you're looking to the top of Maslow's hierarchy, you're really dependent on this one person, it's a very high-risk way to go. But if you can connect on that way and really make each other feel loved and, and, and have a good sex life together and um, promote each other's personal growth, personal betterment, uh, pursuit of the ideal self, that's a great option. But I don't recommend it for everybody. In fact, it really, I presented that as three different strategies, like you can go all in, or you can do these quick and dirty love hacks, or you can ask less. The last chapter in the book says, I presented this as three strategies, but who are we kidding? The best thing to do is figure out what are we good at as a couple? Like you, you and I, like we as a couple, what are we good at? And let's double down on that stuff and really look to each other for that stuff and, 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 and take risks. And, and go all in on those things. What are the things that we're not as good at together? Let's ask less of those things and look to our broader social network. And maybe the lowering expectations is the wrong way to describe it. I always encourage people to make sure that their expectations are realistic. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I get a lot of questions from people who are upset because they perceive their partner as attracted to other people. Oh. And of course your partner is attracted to other people as you are attracted to other people. Yeah. Oh, my wife, you know, wants to sleep with her personal trainer. Of course she does. Yeah. No one in the long sordid history yeah. of personal trainers has ever hired a personal trainer yeah. they didn't want to sleep with. Right. The question is whether she sleeps with him or not right. and honors a monogamous commitment that you two have made. And so to have a realistic expectation as opposed to an unrealistic expectation rather than high or low. Yeah. There's nothing, I don't think someone should lower their expectations to it's okay if we're physically abusive or I'm physically abused. Of course. But of course. to have a realistic expectation around desire, have right. a realistic expectation around this person not being capable of meeting every single one of your needs throughout your life. Yeah, I totally agree. And in fact, I, I really like the example that you're talking about. Um, you know, I, I think I'm sometimes, viewed, like I suspect you are too, I think I'm sometimes viewed as, as non-romantic when I say stuff like that, but, but I'd like to encourage everybody to think of that, and, and maybe, maybe this is the, the way you would encourage it too. I, I'd like people to think about that, it's not, not not as an unromantic thing to say, that like, of course you're gonna be attracted to other people, right? Like that sounds unromantic. What's beautiful about it is that you don't do anything about it, that you say, no, I'm committed to this person that I love and that I'm making a life together with. So yes, what, do I think it would be fun to have sex with some beautiful person who like teaches me how to lift weights? Yeah, for sure it would be. Am I gonna do it? No, why am I not gonna do it? Because I love my spouse and I'm committed to her. Like, I feel like that's beautiful. It can also be beautiful to be in a committed relationship where you can sleep with your personal I, trainer. Yep, that's right. That's right. Who's to I mean, judge? You're, you're talking about adventurous activities couples can I go do. on to, to <laughs> spark their interest in each other and shucking oysters and ballroom dancing. I'm here from the future to tell you the three ways also yeah. are a pretty uh, excellent adventure. That tell me more. 
more about this future. I, I'd like to learn about this uh, future. The couple's sex life. Let, let me actually say one, one quick thing about this. So, so I was advised not to get into this in, in book talks because I was advised that, that people who buy books, you know, would be turned off by this. But frankly, I think you guys had to buy the book to get in, so tough luck. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I talk about, and, and, and I actually talk about it in the chapter on ways that we can ask less of, of the marriage, is consensual non-monogamy. And you've, actually, you've coined the phrase monogamish. Actually, do you want to define that for everyone? Uh, monogamish, when you're mostly monogamous, but not entirely monogamous. Right. Um, you occasionally might have sex with other people, or some people define monogamish just to mean uh, they're acknowledging that their partner may desire someone else, and they're not going to be threatened by that, even if they are going to be sexually monogamous. So there's kind of a monogamish spectrum, right. but I coined the term to describe my husband and I because we were public about being not monogamous. At a time, it was particularly risky to do so because oh, yeah. we were fighting for marriage equality yeah. and we were supposed to be perfect and good and you don't have to be monogamous to be married if you're straight. Right. Why should we have to pretend? Uh, and male couples are less likely to be monogamous. Mm -hmm. Straight couples more likely. Lesbian couples most likely. Right. So if only the most likely to be monogamous deserve to marry, only lesbians <laughs> right. should be allowed to right. marry. And so... They ruin everything. Terry and I being sort of open about being not monogamous in this political debate, people made assumptions about the numbers of people that we were having sex with or the right. kind of sex that we were having right. that just wasn't accurate. No, right. We were mostly monogamous. And that turned into yeah. monogamish. And what, and what I liked about the way you talked about monogamish is the idea that a slip-up doesn't have to be catastrophic. Right, I think is one of the ways you framed it. So I actually talk about it. it, it the, the consensual non-monogamy does come up in the book. The context in which I bring it up is not the only context in which it's relevant. You brought it up in the context of doing shared exciting activities together. Apparently in the future they have threesomes. Um, <laughs> but, but one circumstance under which consensual non-monogamy may well make sense for many couples is we have a close connection and we're good together and we're good co-parents together and we actually love and respect each other, but we haven't wanted to have sex together in months or years, sometimes even more than years, right? And so the question I have is, even if you didn't care about the personal sexual fulfillment of any given person, and frankly, I don't know why we wouldn't care about those things, but even if we set that aside, what's better for the marriage? And I'm not saying that it's not risky. It is risky to have sex with other people outside the marriage because you can run the risk of falling in love even by accident. But one of the things that I, I, I sort of wish were a, t a topic that people could at least talk about is should we have um, any amount of consensual, understood non-monogamy in, in the relationship? And I actually think the gay community is way better about the fact that that's at least a topic that we can broach and discuss. Whereas well, in, I think in, in heterosexual context, like I don't want to get a show of hands because it's embarrassing, but how many of you would feel like, hey, honey, do you think we should have non-monogamy or are you thinking the monogamy thing is good? Like, like I think most of us would be anxious about it. Well, in gay land, uh, monogamy <laughs> was always an opt-in conversation. Uh, are we going to be monogamous or not is a conversation that most particularly gay male couples have. Uh, and most straight couples don't have that conversation. No, yeah, and like so straight reverse. people don't think about whether monogamy is right for them. It's just what's expected of them. And then you have people who are not capable or able of honoring a monogamous commitment, making them, then, and then falling on their face or stepping on the rake. And Interesting crushing someone else's soul or destroying them because... Well, that was a lot of metaphor all in one Yeah, sorry about there. that. I'm a little uh, on Theraflu and cold medicine. I'm kind of dying of a cold right now. Yeah. 
You know, the problem I think with uh, infidelity in marriage is we define infidelity as an extinction level event in a relationship, and then right. that's how we feel obligated to experience it. That's right. Rather yeah, than hold on, let me just make sure that was clear to everybody. Extinction level meaning sufficient condition for a divorce. Or you're expected to divorce. There's no other option right. but right. divorce. And then that's what people do. And knowing from the data and the research that roughly now with cheating becoming more sort of uh, egalitarian. Women are now doing it as often as men do it. Uh, p women and men under 40 cheat at the same rate. Used to be that men cheated much more and people went, oh, men are terrible, women are good and pure. No, women were economically disadvantaged and lacked power in relationships. And didn't meet people through work. And didn't meet people with work and didn't have the same options or freedom. Right. And now women do and they cheat just as much. So what we know is that just about every relationship infidelity is going to touch because if half of men and half of women are cheating, those cheaters aren't all married to each other. <laughs> Mostly they're married to people that didn't cheat. And so we should probably reframe infidelity and what it means so that it is less likely to end a monogamous relationship that should survive. Monogamy, sorry, I'm gonna go off for a second <laughs> at your book event. But monogamy is the only thing that people attempt where perfect execution is the only standard for success. You can be the world's greatest snowboarder and fall down and get up and still be the world's greatest snowboarder. We talk about monogamy like we talk about virginity. You're monogamous until you have sex with someone else and then you busted your monogamy hymen yeah. and it's gone forever. <laughs> and we should talk about it the way we talk about sobriety where you can fall off the monogamy wagon and sober back up and climb back on that wagon. So, so two, th uh, actually three, th three quick, very quick thoughts on this. By the way, if you are not a listener to the Savage Love podcast, the Sa what, what's the, the? Savage Love cast. Sa Savage Love cast. Please do yourself a favor and do it. Second thing I want to say is um, there is a terrific book coming out. You, have you read Esther Perel's yes, new book? Yes, I got to read an advanced copy. Yeah, um, and so it's coming out on October 11th, I think, October 10th, and it's, it's called State of Affairs, and, it, and I think it is the most insightful perspective on... Um, those are actually affairs. That's not usually consensual non-monogamy. Yes. But the third thing I want to say is my book actually deals with this same issue in a different sort of way. Like, I actually have a lot of admiration both for how you and Esther Perel are, are dealing with it. The, 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 book, the book deals with it... Um, oh, did I lose my train of thought? Uh, about... Um, oh, so the book says this. It, it says... You know, people often have these discussions, and in fact, you. So I, I think here's a place where maybe we can have a little bit of a disagreement. It would be fun. So, so people are on various sides of an issue where they'll say something like, X is not realistic. You've never said that. But, but like monogamy is not realistic. So there are people who are pushing for, advocating for, which I don't think is you, but advocating for polyamory or, or non-exclusivity as like the optimal way for humans to function because we, and that's not you. Yeah. But people, you know, you've heard people do this. Yeah. So that, 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 but basically, we've never evolved to be monogamous. It's ridiculous that we're even trying. Well. Here's the reality. We have evolved to have an enormously flexible mating system. We've evolved to pair bond, right? Chimps and bonobos are our closest uh, evolutionary relatives. They don't pair bond, right? Humans have evolved to pair bond. I'm happy to tell you the, the evolutionary story for why that is, but humans have evolved to pair bond. We fall in love. Right? Now, that's not the same thing as saying we should be with the same person for 60 years or that we'll never desire to be with somebody else. It says there is a broad repertoire. That, that humans have, and it involves, it, it goes from absolute monogamy and blissful monogamy for 60 years to never really getting involved in, in anything particularly serious, although frankly, I don't know many people who are able to do that and be happy, so if anything, I think we tilt more the other direction. But the book basically says it's, it, it, it's not about one or another approach somewhere along that spectrum being the right way to do these things or the, the sensible way in light of our evolution. 
we have a lot of freedom to, to make the system that works best for us, and I just wish more people would have open conversations about it. My guess is that the majority of people will actually be best off in a monogamous relationship. So I'm not pushing at all for anything other than that, except to say, it's not best for everybody. Why do we have a one-size-fits-all solution? And I reject and push back against people in the non-monogamous uh, side who get prescriptive about it, who say exactly. this is the only right way. Right. But it's been my experience that they're the, a tiny minority yeah. of the non-monogamous crowd. Yeah. The people who mostly go on and on uh, about people doing it wrong are monogamous people right. telling non-monogamous people right. that we're not doing love and commitment right. That's right. Uh, I've had this conversation several times uh, with folks who've approached me about monogamy and non-monogamy who said, I couldn't do what you and Terry do because I value love and commitment too oh, highly. Boy. And then the next thing out of their mouths, all three of my marriages right. were monogamous. <laughs> right, right. And that's someone, that's someone who's committed to monogamy, not to any of the suckers they married. No. They're committed to monogamy. And as Esther says, monogamy used to mean one person for life. Now it means one person at a time. Right. And I am committed to Terry. And it sounds like you're committed for life. And committed for life. Yeah. And not committed to a monogamous ideal, on which, um, the altar of monogamy on which I'm willing to sacrifice spouse after spouse after spouse. Right. right. I, I never get that. That like, thing that you do that like, makes an audience go... Like, you're going to teach me how to like, say really you smart stuff. You have to burn stuff. me at a stake yeah. is what's going to happen. Um, one of the things that uh, is much discussed about marriage, actually an article just this week also in the New York Times mm -hmm. about it, is that it's becoming uh, something that affluent people do, college-educated people, people yeah. with money. What contribution do you think that is playing in this all-or-nothing marriage and how the best marriages now are better than they've ever been? Is there an economic component to this? Are we talking about, uh, in the way we talk about the 1% in economic inequality, is there the 1% and is there an economic dimension to the satisfaction of the all people, the really totally self-actualized people in marriage? Because if people yes. who can't afford to marry, people who are under economic strain, right. people who can't meet Maslow's first and second right. sort of levels of that right. uh, mountain uh, aren't marrying anymore, who is marrying? People with the resources to just nail the food, shelter, clothing, heat, right. and uh, safety, yeah. and are less likely, therefore, to reach that pinnacle of self-actualization? Yeah. Roll with me here for a second, because my views here are a little bit complex. So, so I didn't set out to write a book on socioeconomic status and marriage in America. But the more I learned about the state of marriage in America today, which is what my topic is, the more I realized that you actually can't write a book about marriage in America today without taking seriously socioeconomic status and in particular, surging inequality. So that wasn't a central element of what I intended to do in the book, but now there is a chapter in the book that, that engages seriously with what's going on with why people without a college degree, without a high school degree, that is the, the, really the poorest Americans, are struggling so much. And just to give you a sense of the data, they're marrying less, their divorce rates are staggeringly high. So, so among people with a college education, I'm assuming that's probably most of the people in this room, divorce rates have been plummeting. Like not just declining a little bit since 1980, but coming down at a, at a pretty fast clip. People who don't have a high school degree, their divorce rates are continuing to surge, right? So, so it is almost like a Mars and Venus type of, of um, set of, of marital outcomes, right? Are you getting married? Are you staying married, et cetera? So there are various possible explanations for this, and, I, and, and in my book, I deal with five, right? There's, there's five hypotheses that I introduced that, that, I mean, I haven't introduced them all, but I think are, are 
you know, reasonable hypotheses from the start, including lower um, people who are lower down the socioeconomic ladder don't have enough respect for the institution of marriage. Turns out to be factually false. If anything, they respect the institution of marriage more than people like us do. Um, but one that I do want to talk about as it interfaces with this all-or-nothing theory of marriage is there is good research, like big nationally representative research that oversamples people on the TANF program on welfare and people higher up the socioeconomic ladder, and it asks them, what do you think is important in a marriage? And it, it gives them a bunch of things. So to what degree do you think it's important in a marriage for you to have sexual compatibility? To what degree do you think it's important in a marriage um, for you to have, it, it gives a whole list of things. But the one that's most relevant for our purposes is, to what degree is it important in a marriage that your spouse helps fulfill your hopes and dreams? So for my money, the, the, the sort of, these people are stuck down Maslow's hierarchy, there's no way they can dream of those things, you should expect a difference, such that, such that people who are currently on welfare say, look, that's not that important in a marriage. Like, uh, we have to like, make enough money. I don't, I'm not even thinking about that stuff. But there aren't differences across the socioeconomic ladder, right? That is, very recently, the media has split, to, to, the media have split so much that, that maybe 10 years from now, we won't have one culture, really. But by and large, until the last 10 years or so, there were not that many television stations. You know, there, there was like an American culture, even though there's a lot of variation within it. And it turns out that up and down the socioeconomic ladder, we are looking for a marriage that makes us feel loved and connected, that makes us, that helps us achieve our hopes and dreams. So what I think is going on is, remember I talked about supply and demand, right? That, that, that the all or nothing theory of marriage is pretty much just a gussied up supply and demand model. Can, can your, does your marriage have the supply to meet what you're demanding of it? Well, it's hard to meet the, the demands when you're under extreme duress. Now, this could be an investment banker working 110 hours a week trying to close a deal. I think that person also has a marriage that is at risk, especially if that goes on long enough. But think about what it's like to, to be poor in America right now and, and how much stress there is. We know that stress is a huge predictor of marital conflict and marital problems. And then think about, okay, we'll hold stress aside and say, all right, well, now we actually do get an hour together. Like, how much energy do we have to do these novel and exciting activities together? It's like we're spent. And so I think the major reason why you're seeing this, this divergence isn't really so much about the different expectations of people up and down the socioeconomic ladder, but about how realistic the current loose consensus that we have in America about what we should be looking for from our marriage, how realistic that is in light of the, the enormous stress that's, that large swaths of our populace is under. Can we talk about Amy Muse's research for a sure, minute that sure. you cite? Yeah. Um, her ideas around, or her research into adventure, basically, yeah, that's right. and, and sexual fulfillment, meeting each other's needs. You talked about the importance of sexual compatibility. Yeah. I think, and I'm constantly telling people on my stupid podcast, that sexual compatibility is crucial in a sexually exclusive relationship in particular. And yet, because of the sort of sex phobia in the culture, if you prioritize sexual compatibility at the outset, you're a bad person who's obsessed about sex and you should be prioritizing an emotional connection, mm. everything else marriage is supposed to be about. Right, As everyone's a, caught in the middle, it's like they can't win. Right, they yeah. can't win. Yeah. Uh, I deal with a lot of the fallout after people who aren't sexually compatible, uh, but compatible in every other way, marry and are in a sexually exclusive relationship where there is no sex and it isn't working. Mm -hmm. Is a premarital hack 
advisable around sexual compatibility? Should people be prioritizing sexual compatibility? You, you mean, when you say premarital hack, you mean selecting someone with whom you are compatible. Is that what you mean? Before you marry that person. Look, I think that's great, but I actually think the best thinking on this has been done by a guy named Dan Savage, um, who, 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 who sort of disagrees with you, um, and, and, and who talks about, and again, I assume many people already know this, um, uh, who talks about um, being good, giving, and game, right? So GGG, like how do you have a fulfilling sexual life with a long, with, especially within the context of a long-term relationship. You gotta be good, that is cultivate some amount of sexual skill, don't just assume that stuff's gonna happen. Uh, giving, that is to be generous, at least as giving as much as you're getting. And game, meaning within reason, to be willing to take some amount of sexual adventure in the marriage. And, and so yes, I think there is sexual compatibility, but in addition to that, I, I agree with this other Dan Savage. Um, <laughs> no, I do think yeah. that people can grow to be more sexually compatible. Exactly. People can move closer together if they're willing to meet, you, meet each other's needs. Uh, if they don't believe uh, what they've been told around, uh, and this is hard to talk about, it's hard to unpack, it's, it's kind of gendered because women are under, under a lot of pressure to defer to men and, and meet men's needs without making similar demands. So I always have to qualify this to the nth degree when I say it, yeah. but people are told never do anything in bed that you don't want to do. Right. And I think that's terrible advice. Never do anything in bed that leaves you traumatized, it's, leaves you curl oh, up in the fetal sure. position on the floor afterwards <laughs> right. sobbing. Those are good, good pieces That of makes advice. you feel degraded in yeah. a non-sexy way. Some people find degradation that can be sexy in yeah. a sexy way. Right. But <laughs> to say to somebody, oh, you're, you're not into feet, but your partner's into feet, never let them touch your feet because that's not something you are right. into. Right. That's just a recipe for sexual incompatibility yeah. and frustration and resentment yeah. and divorce. Yeah, and I don't know why it gets its own category. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we make sacrifice to be happy in the relationship. I got a, I got a little sign from the back that said Q&A. Should we do a few oh, minutes? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, so we I'm, can open it up. I think we have a few minutes, yeah. Any questions? Do we have a microphone for the audience so we can catch this for the radio? Do we have a microphone? No? I think we might have intimidated them. Well, Speci I will run out. If you have a question, you. I will run out to you with my microphone. If you've ever wanted me to stick something in your face, this is your opportunity. <laughs> no questions? How many people are in all marriages? Everyone's going to feel obligated to raise your hand. Don't feel How obligated. many are sitting next to your spouse right now and don't want to answer? <laughs> <laughs> um, so... What should we do? Should we, uh, oh, oh, there's a question here. We have at least one. Dan, if you could get Eli to run one study for you, studying relationships, what would you want him to, how would you want him to design that study? Oh my God, I have to think about that one for a second. One study to study relationships. Uh, like a science-based study, to the quality of relationships where there was a monogamous commitment, there was an infidelity, and the couple moved past it. How many couples stay together in a low-conflict, unhappy marriage for appearance's sake or the children, where they've just defeated? And how many couples flourish after the infidelity? You know, there's some research on this. I mean, the, the, one of the big problems, one of the big challenges about studying... Um, relationships as opposed to, I don't know, studying water molecules, um, is that you, there's limitations on how much we can manipulate things, how much we can intervene. And if you can't intervene as the scientist to say, all right, you guys are in the have an affair group and you guys are in the not have an affair group and then who's happier 10 years later. Um, so, so then you have to, 
th then you have the challenge of like, well, the affair group differed from the beginning from the non-affair group, and so you have these interpretational problems. But the broader issue that you're raising is crucial, and it is one that I deal with in the book, n not in the context of, of recovering from an affair, but of how we think about conflict in the marriage, think about conflict in our relationship. So you can think of conflict as something that is, is an indicator of how compatible we are. I'm not saying that's crazy, but I am going to say that's counterproductive for the well-being of your marriage. And, and some people take a different approach to thinking about conflict, not as an indicator of how compatible we are, but as an opportunity for growth, for growth at the individual level and for us to work through this sort of incompatibility and to try to be better off. It turns out that as long as people aren't having um, high levels of conflict, you can have either of those two belief systems, but almost all marriages will eventually have some amount of conflict, and it's really that second belief system that says this is an opportunity for growth and development and betterment of the relationship. Those people are far better off once conflict hits because they have such a more constructive way of thinking about things. I have a question. Yes. If nobody Dan, else has um, a question. Dan over there has a question, yeah. Oh, did you have a question? I'm sorry, we'll go. I got to ask mine. Um, so, um, I really liked your, your metaphor of, of, of like going up and, and down the mountain and, and needing to, you know, being able to go and make an ascent and then needing to come back down to, to base camp. Um, if you're in sort of a, you know, you were at the peak and, um, and that was great and it was, you know, literally breathtaking because the air is thinner up there um, and you come back down, you're at base camp. Um, how do you know or, or what are good signs when it's, not safe is the wrong word because it's never safe. Um, but like when you you've got enough air back to try to make that ascent again. You know, there's no. I mean, there's no easy answer to this. I mean, let, let me just, let me give you an experience from my own life. So so we like I had a really difficult adjustment to parenthood. So when we transitioned from no parent, uh, no kids. What? Sorry, yeah, no children, um, to one child. I just thought it was really difficult. And I actually felt very disappointed in my life in general and very disappointed in my marriage. And it felt like, boy, everything that we used to love to do is gone. And I actually think that's pretty much correct. For a while, it, it really was gone. And, um, and it, it was a real threat to my happiness and our marriage. And, and eventually, we recalibrated. We sort of were like, base camp, that's not so bad. And when the second kid came, we did better, not, not because it was easier in an objective sense, but because we weren't looking to the marriage to be just like it had been in, those, in the newlywed period, we expected it to be really rough, and when it was rough, it wasn't so upsetting this time. With regard to your question in, in particular, I don't remember the moment when we started climbing again, but now my younger kid's almost five, and, and I actually feel like we're, not, not permanently, not, not forever, but for the moment, like my wife and I are, are like back up there again, and so, I don't know the degree to which this generalizes, but it's like it's like you feel like things are things are kind of good and we're enjoying each other and, and you sort of go all in again, some of it without even really noticing that you're doing it, and then some of it with more more strategic approaches. Um, one last little thing. These things are always a risk. I mean, marriage is insane. Marriage is this massive risk, right? It's this beautiful risk that says, you're 30 and I'm 30 and we're gonna change in massive ways and this little snapshot I've had of your life for the last two, three years is totally unrepresentative of what our life is gonna be like. Like if you actually thought through whether this is a sensible thing to do, you'd be like, no, it's really not a sensible thing to do. But that's what's so gorgeous about it. It's like, let's do this thing. Let's do this thing and let's really make this thing work. So you're never gonna know.
But there are times when you feel like you can take the gamble. Hi, is there, is there any data out there that speaks to the, um, the couple that's thinking of marriage that may be not going to have kids, maybe it's a second marriage, they're financially uh, stable, they have great opportunity to move up that marriage ladder and really reap the benefits of this time period uh, in their, with their conception of marriage being similar to what you're talking about. Is there any data speaking to whether or not it's marriage itself is, uh, apart from the commitment, the, the marriage, as opposed to not being married but being committed to each other, makes a difference? Not if it's, if it's not going to be rearing children. Not well. good data, no. I, I mean, and again, we, here we have the same problem of you take samples of people who are together for 15 years but didn't marry versus sample of people who were together for 15 years and did marry, they're like not they're not easy to compare. It used to be for a long time, until fairly recently, that, that people like me, that is, that is relationships researchers who are paying attention to the data, relationship scientists basically, that we felt pretty confident saying that on average, marriage is a good thing. That, that on average, you, you, you look across the various sort of lifestyles people lead, and on average, people who are married tend to be a little bit happier on average than people who are leading other sorts of lifestyles. Now, remember, of course, that not everybody was allowed to marry up until very recently, and even today, there's some issues with that. But I don't even feel that comfortable with, with, with that generalization um, for a variety of reasons related to who selects into these various groups, but also because Marriage is an all-or-nothing thing these days. And so I guess I would say if you knew that you could get involved in this relationship and that it was really going to flourish, I would say, yeah, that's a really good way to build a successful life together, to raise a happy family together. But, but a lot of marriages are falling short, maybe more than 50% if you want to talk about not only divorce but also pretty unhappy. Um, and so I wouldn't say that marrying versus non-marrying is, is clearly the better way to go. It occurs to me, you might have been asking a variation of that question, which is, if you're in a happy relationship, should you like do the formal thing or just stay in a happy relationship without formalizing it? Is, is that the question you were asking? Probably, probably yeah. So I don't have a strong... Can you, can you kind of overstretch yourself and sort of ruin your chances by taking that you know, socially, socially expected step? Is that actually, can it be negative impact on certain couples at certain times in their life. Is there any I, evidence I don't to think, indicate that? I, I mean, look, as a proof of concept, I'm sure you could see it. I don't worry much about this. I, I don't worry much about, like, the, the relationship's going great, like, formalizing it in marriage is, is going to harm it in some way because, in principle, you should be allowed to bring whatever's great about the, the relationship, including the rules about how the relationship is going to go, to the marriage. If marriage came with an absolute sacred set of rules that you must apply now that you're married, then you're right. There could be some risk associated with that transition. But in principle, there's still flexibility on the other side. So I, I'm, I'm not particularly worried about the case where formalizing the relationship makes it bad. Any other questions? Is there any data about how much of it is picking the right person versus being the right person? So, no. Any other questions? Uh, <laughs> the, the um, you know, um, no. You might have noticed. You might have noticed that I sort of glossed over this. Well, when I was like, there's demand and there's supply, and what is the supply? And I was like, oh, and there's compatibility. It was one of the things I mentioned as part of the supply, and then I just like swept it under the rug. 
it turns out that my field hasn't done that great a job at unpacking what compatibility actually is. We know that it's something to do with, with the extent to which the goals that you set and the way that you pursue those goals aligns with the goals that I set and the way that I pursue those goals. That's not the same thing as saying we have the same goals. It's like as I go through my life trying to pursue the goals that I have for me and, and the goals that I have for you and you have for me and you have for you, do these things align sort of like gears that fit well together or do they misalign? And so there's some interesting thinking about that, but the nature of, com of compatibility, I, I actually think it's plausible that I might do a book on this at some point because I, I don't think we know it well enough and I want to do some real thinking about it. Um, but there is, <laughs> thank you, um, there certainly is such a thing as compatibility. Relationships researchers or like therapists often make it seem like you just work hard enough and everything will come together. And I honestly, I think some people are better off never being together or divorcing. Um, but that said, there is a, there is a broad range of, of relationship compatibility that we can make work and sometimes make work really well through, you know, cultivating the sorts of skills and thinking well about how we're going to relate together regardless of what our baseline level of compatibility was. Sorry, one other thing. Our compatibility is going to change over time. Remember I talked about this huge gamble that you take when you get married? Like, it's going to get better, it's going to get worse. Like, you can't exactly know how your goals and priorities are going to change. So it's something that we're, most of us are going to have to deal with as we go through a long-term marriage. Yeah, my question is about, in the final part of your book, you go about, talk about going all in or love hacking yes. or um, recalibrating. recalibrating yeah. And, and uh, how people do that, they may not just have a conversation, which strategy shall we to try. They, they may have all kinds of messages from peers and society and family of origin. And what if the spouses are using different strategies? Does that Dif make sense? What if one is all in and one is recalibrating? And, and in terms of what, I mean, it, that's a key part of your book, but yeah. it, certainly that's Maybe that's in the book. And no, I not really. I mean, I don't think I fully dealt with that in the book. And I, and I have to tell you, dealing with it right now, I think I'm also not going to fully deal with it. I mean, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, so, so, so we can imagine a case where you, you feel like, look, we're looking to our one, this one person for too many things, and I've got this great friendship network, and I'd really like to spend more time doing that. While simultaneously, I'm thinking you're like really the, the most important person in my life, and I feel like, if anything, I've been under-prioritizing you. Where can we find more time for, for each other? That's, I mean, that's just one of these, these prototype, you're going to have to negotiate that situations. Like, I don't think that's an easy solution. One thing that I think is a little bit easier is that we don't necessarily need to be identical in how we get support, right? So it could be the case that I like a lot of, of really tender emotional nurturance, and I really would like for you to sort of, you know, soothe me when I'm feeling sad or something like that, and you feel like, don't rub me, like, I, you know, I don't want to be, you know, touched and nurtured in that way. It makes me feel uncomfortable. You could, in fact, support me in the way that's comfortable for me, and I could support you in a way that's comfortable for you. So we don't have to be the same or pursue the same goals for ourselves as long as we're sensitive to how I'm sensitive to how you function and you're sensitive to how I function, and we're able to provide those roles for each other, even if they're not the roles we want for themselves. But if you really are in a situation where there's literally diametrically opposite interests at play, it's just going to require a pretty complex negotiation or worse. Okay, we have time for two more questions. So you alluded to Gottman earlier, yep. and, and we are in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see your a model of what, what makes a marriage an all-marriage, uh, comparing it to how the Gottmans see what makes a marriage a successful. Um, 
I will attempt to do that. I mean, he, the, the, the Gottmans are just absolute luminaries, and they're huge out here in Seattle in particular, but, but really everywhere. Um, I think, by and large, we function at different levels of analysis. So, like, the entire front two-thirds of the book, I, I, again, I have not comprehensively read their entire oeuvre. I hope I pronounced that word correctly. Everything they've ever written. Um, so, like, I'm trying to integrate a, across a number of different disciplines, and I think they are very close to the experimental laboratory data. So, for those of you who don't know, they really largely pioneered and doubled down on the procedures where couples have a conflict discussion, they're sitting next to each other, their physiology is being recorded, um, they're, they're being videotaped, we're measuring their eye blinks, right? Like really micro-level conversational sorts of stuff. And they've developed a number of, of they've discovered a number of, of um, communication strategies, interpersonal strategies that tend to be associated with better marriages or worse marriages. For example, negative reciprocity is a, is a, is a bad sign, right? That's like, all of us have negativity in the relationship. Better functioning relationships tend to be able to escalate out of that without too much difficulty. Whereas like, like Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, right? It's like when, when the first person does something negative, it's just nonstop retaliation. Like those guys, those dudes have a bad marriage. <laughs> so I want to understand um, the all or nothing marriage better. You know, you, you talk about it as people looking for self-actualization uh, through their marriage. And, and the image was, you know, that you're um, the sculptor of your partner, mm -hmm. like letting out who their better, best person is or whatever. And I'm a little, I'm, I guess I'm a little uncomfortable with that because I, I think of marriage as more, um, you know, we're supportive of our partner in... Uh, you know, like we're we're compatible and we have similar goals, or you know, we're sort of moving forward in the ways that work for us, um, and we're supportive of our partner in them when they come up with, I think I want to go to grad school or whatever, yeah. whatever it is, but not that sense of um, I'm going to create. You know, that, yeah. that sense of responsibility for shaping the other or... Right. Like, I kind of don't get... I kind of don't get what you're talking about. Yeah, David about. Brooks got to you, I see. No, um, so... Um, I love the Michelangelo metaphor. The Michelangelo metaphor. I don't, know, I don't know if this... You can tell me if this addresses exactly the issue that you're raising. So, so I, I am a big fan of the Michelangelo metaphor because if we're, the, if we're the couple, it's not that I'm trying to change you. It's that I recognize what your hopes and dreams are for yourself and that I try to help you support, I try to help you achieve those things, right? The, you're the, we're both blocks of stone and we're trying to sculpt each other. So you could contrast it with what you might call the Pygmalion effect, which is like, I want you to you know, speak the Queen's English and I'm going to train you into becoming a version of me that I like and respect. So, so the Michelangelo version is, we have an ideal version of ourselves inside. This is the humanistic psychology idea, Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow and so forth, that, that there is like an authentic version of ourselves. He, he often says the painter must paint, right? There is sort of truth in there. Now, is that fully true or, or social construction? It's a separate issue. Um, and so the idea is, is I should try to help you be the best version of yourself by your own definition. And you should try to help me be the best version of myself by my own definition. And, and that's where if we do it well together, we can flourish. If that's not a complete answer to your question, I'm happy to chat more about so, it. So after. rather than sculpting, you're helping to draw out. Yes. And it's a mutual that's right. effect. That's a good way of saying it, yes. 
All right, we have to end here because you need to sign some books. Eli Finkel, The All or Nothing Marriage. Thank, Thank you. you all for coming. Thank you very much. Thanks for streaming this extra episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. The University Bookstore hosted this conversation between Eli J. Finkel and Dan Savage on September 26, 2017. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. And hey, subscribe to our podcast when you get a chance. We appreciate your clicks and your comments. Tune in again soon. Thank you.